This week's episode is sponsored by Jagged Edge Productions and ITN Studios' Winnie the Pooh, Blood and Honey 2. Only in theaters, March 26th to March 28th. The suspenseful and thrilling sequel to last year's immense hit, Winnie the Pooh, Blood and Honey, amplifies the gore factor with ten times the number of kills to put fans both new and old at the edge of their seats. After Christopher Robin reveals their existence, Winnie the Pooh, Piglet, Tigger, and Owl land on the endangered species list as hard targets. Unwilling to hide in the shadows, the ultimate scream team embarks on a murderous rampage through the town of Ashdown to get their revenge on Christopher Robin, once and for all. So don't miss out, and mark your calendars to catch the limited engagement of Winnie the Pooh, Blood and Honey 2, only in theaters March 26th to March 28th. Tickets are available now. This episode is brought to you by Paramount+. Plus. Get in, loser! Mean Girls is now streaming on Paramount+. Plus. Join Katie Heron as she meets the plastics and Tina Fey's new twist on the modern classic. Get ready for more of the rumors, backstabbing, and jokes you loved from the original movie with some fetch surprises. Rated PG-13. Wear pink and head to ParamountPlus.com to try it free. This is the Bloody Disgusting Podcast Network. to horror queers we're talking hammer horror we're talking gothic horror and we're talking you must die everyone must die and i'm joe and i'm trace and we're talking lots of boobies yeah see i left that for you i know i knew knew that you would want that (laughs) no it's not that i want honestly so you know i I have my whole like list of things that i have to get out of the way like in the beginning of each episode recording and you'd think by now i would know okay what's the one thing i'm gonna say and I always forget until we start. And so literally, like, when you're going through your spiel, I'm, like, going through my plot summary of the movie. Like, oh, my God, what can I say? What can I say? <laughs> Don't say tits. <laughs> See, I feel like I've learned this from you. So I try to leave the most obvious thing for you. No, I'll get better about it. But <laughs> sorry. <laughs> Two years later. The peek behind the curtains, listeners. Uh, we are talking The Vampire Lovers. And this is our first, well, our first foray on the podcast into Hammer Horror. Mm-hmm. We have covered um, the their, one of their other films, Dr. Jekyll and Sister Hyde, for our article series, and you can go read that. Mm-hmm. Same director. Oh, yeah. Same director who is Roy Ward Baker. Wow. Wow. That's hard to say. It's very British. <laughs> but before we get too deep into the conversation, um, we have a guest on today's episode to help us, because um, I'm pretty sure she's a hammer horror expert. Uh, <laughs> ladies and gentlemen and everyone in between, you may know her writing from such outlets like Polygon, Bloody Disgusting, Bitch Mag, Daily Grindhouse, and Grim Magazine. She is the co-host of the Scarred for Life podcast with one of our previous guests, Terry Menard. She's also a self-proclaimed cryptozoologist. Oh, and there's nary a found footage film she hasn't seen. Please so welcome true. Mary Beth McAndrews. Hi. Hi. How that are you? That makes me sound so much cooler than I am. I was going to say, <laughs> it's quite a litany of publications you've got there, miss. 
you usually when I do the bios, I like okay, cool. I'm gonna take some stuff that like I, I, that's on their like about pages, but then I'm also gonna like give my own flair to it if I know stuff about them. And so I was like, yes, <laughs> I love that. I love the flair. I was very excited to hear all of it's, that. It's why he threw you under the bus and mis misannounced you as a hammer horror expert. Oh yeah, that was a joke. <laughs> I know. I was like, oh, I love that. I was like, oh, I can't wait till everyone's like, wait, huh? <laughs> This woman doesn't know anything she about Hammer know Horror. Anything. <laughs> but you can bet that if Hammer if Hammer Film Productions did a found footage film in the seventies, you probably would have seen it by now. Oh, one hundred percent. How are you doing, Mary Beth? I'm doing well. You know, this as, as well as we can. Yeah. Do. <laughs> you know, surviving alive. Remember back in the spring where we were all making jokes, being like, uh, "In the summer, we're all going to look back on this and laugh." <laughs> now it's the fall. Uh-huh. <laughs> there was no punchline there, folks. I have I'm nothing sorry. to say to that. I can just, I like... know. That's, like, literally... I just, like, the nod of my head. I'm like, mm-hmm. It's just dead air, dead air. Um, no, but in all seriousness, so, you, so you, uh, this is your first Hammer horror film, right? It is my first Hammer horror film. It's, like, something that, you know, you hear all the time, like, Hammer horror, Hammer horror, and I have just never wandered into the world of hammer but after watching this movie i actually am very excited to dive into the rest of it like this their films i mean i, I won't speak for joe but i'm pretty sure i will be uh i'm in the same boat you know it, it's always a term that i heard thrown around and it, whenever that daniel radcliffe movie the woman in black was coming out people were like oh my god it's the return of hammer horror and i was like i don't know what that means <laughs> what the fuck does that mean <laughs> <laughs> So, listeners, lest you think that we are experts, and we're not. So, um, while we we have done our due diligence, and we think we're going to be pretty good at this, um, if we get something wrong... Let us know, but be nice. Uh, you can email us, and we will 100% read it. Wow. Okay. <laughs> Damn. <laughs> not even a tweet. It's like, you must email. <laughs> I will not read any tweets. No, 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 no. It's fine. No, but um, no. Again, like uh, this. This is my second one, Joe. This is yours too, right? Correct. Yes. And I feel like a bad horror fan, right? Because I'm like, there are so many of those like Dracula and Frankenstein movies that they did in the '60s that I just, I just never watched them. Well, I think one of the things that we're touching on the fact that all three of us are fairly limited in this output is a there's a shit ton of horror to constantly be watched. And a lot of the time we're trying to keep up on the game, Mm -hmm. but also B, it's I just feel like there are certain decades and certain nationalities of horror that we're sometimes hesitant to dip our toes into unless we have a good reason to. And every time, every time, this second time that I have revisited a Hammer Horror, I don't know, it's done something to say like, hey, these are actually good films. They're not the schlocky messes that they sometimes get labeled as when you mm-hmm. when you do readings on them. And there's a lot of value here and you start to realize you know what i really should try to diversify my watching and like we've talked a lot about 90s and 2000s horror on the pod so it's kind of good to come back and celebrate the 50th anniversary of this particular film i have the same problem i have a lot of blind spots especially like in like horror in like the 40s and 50s and 60s and this was a nice way like this was a really great way to remind me like those movies are 100% worth watching and also have a lot to say and a lot (laughs) they also were you know they're where a lot of what we watch now comes from at least from inspiration and it's so cool to watch these movies and go oh okay like this is why this is like this or like i can see the history and the through lines this way particularly for you because you watch so many vampire films like i'm hoping that you're gonna see some resonance from some of your more recent watches right? yeah and like to and like to caveat that i watch a lot of vampire movies from like 
90s to 2000s and some 80s so i'm not as well versed in like hammer vampires or like other like that kind of vampire but (laughs) just saying that now before someone comes for me (laughs) um but we're also defensive tonight (laughs) i know (laughs) that's good though but i I think what's easy to forget about the hammer films though is that if they're essentially foreign films i mean yes they're in english but they're from the uk and Mm -hmm. so when i think of like decades of horror like when it's 60s i'm like cool it's like psycho the birds night of the living dead the 70s, I mean, obviously there's a lot of subgenres going on by that point, but I'm thinking, you know, like Halloween, The Exorcist, Omen, like things Jaws. like that. Jaws, yes, exactly. I, 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 it's predominantly American work that I'm thinking of. And so I just, like, I don't know if it was because, like, I never I never came across these on TV, or if I did, they, they have a very distinct look to them that I think maybe my mm-hmm. child brain was like, that's old, I don't want to watch that. Yeah. Mm -hmm. This is stately. Why would you watch it? It's for old people. And then you watch it and you're like, oh no, it's just for adults. (laughs) I will say that, um, I mean, especially with Vampire Lovers, it was definitely more mature than I was expecting it to be. And like, it's, it's getting, it's weird, right? Like as we're in the year 2020, the year of our Lord 2020. (laughs) And, and like, when I think about like the olden days, I'm like, oh, they really couldn't get away with that much. But I'm like, wait, this is 1970. Like, I mean, Mm -hmm. you know. Three years later is The Exorcist. Like, I don't know why I see a movie from 1970. I'm shocked sometimes by what I'm seeing sometimes. I have the same problem. I'm always like, there's no way they're going to show any tits. And oh mm-hmm. my God, there's titties in this movie. And it's like, oh, it actually isn't that far-fetched. Like, why do you think that a 1970s horror movie will just be so conservative and like... Right. Well, and like a lot of the... the like, Herschel Gordon Lewis, I want to say, um, oh God, The Wizard of Gore is like, what, 1960-something? So it's... Yeah. Early 60s, yeah. Yeah. So yeah, yeah. It's just one of those blind spots for all of us, and that's okay, because that's why we have podcasts, so we can educate ourselves on these things. Seriously, I feel like half the reason I have a podcast at this point is to make sure I watch movies I've never seen. Yeah. <laughs> I'm like, help me, like, force me to fill in the gaps in my horror knowledge, please, and, and now I can not look like a total doofus when I say I haven't seen that movie. Yeah. <laughs> okay, well, so, okay, for anyone, because I'm sure we have some listeners who also are not familiar with Hammer Horror, so I want to do a little primer on it before we just jump into this film. Um... And this is taken from our article on Dr. Jekyll and Sister Hyde because I did my research for that one. So basically, Hammer Film Productions was founded in 1934. Um, they did a bunch of shit, but they didn't focus on horror initially. So they were at their prime from the mid-50s until the end of the 70s. What happened in the mid-50s was basically the birth of Hammer Horror. It began with a 1955 adaptation of the BBC television science fiction serial The Quatermass Experiment, not the quarter mass, the quarter mass. But it wasn't until it's an 1957. Important distinction. <laughs> it's a really important distinction. Um, but it wasn't until 1957 that they would that the studio would strike gold with their first gothic horror film, which was The Curse of Frankenstein. That film not only has the distinction of grossing 70 times its budget and box office receipts, but also for being the very first horror film to show gore in color. That latter fact sparked quite a controversy, but it obviously helped the film's box office because I'm sure the word of mouth was like, oh my god, I've never seen this before. It's the gore equivalent of the train coming at the audience. Yeah. Oh my god. <laughs> so um, they were like, cool, we can do this monster stuff. So let's do more of that. But obviously, you know, the big, the big rights holder for monsters was Universal because they had all those monster movies of the 30s and 40s. Right. So after sorting out some legal issues with Universal International, who held the rights for Dracula, Hammer Films released The Horror of Dracula, The Horror of Dracula in 1958, which went I'm also sorry, went on. Did you say Horror of Dracula? <laughs> the Horror of Dracula. Yes. <laughs> I mean, I might as well call us horror queers, right? 
Eh. I know, I know. (laughs) (laughs) Anyway, so yeah, the horror of Dracula does go on to break box office records. Um, So this led Universal International's decision to sell Hammer Films the remake rights to their entire library of classic films. Wow. Yeah. So from there, Hammer Films had their pick of the litter of classic Universal monsters like The Invisible Man, Phantom of the Opera... And they dabbled in other famed horror characters like the Abominable Snowman and, of course, Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde. Those kind of dominate the 60s. The 70s is when they start to get into more... It's weird. <laughs> so I think that some people, fans of Hammer Horror, they view the 60s as, like, the classics. But the 50s and 60s as the classics. And then the 70s as, like, the... The trash years. It's when it gets a little more titillating. Yes, and that's because of the British censorship. Like it was, it was getting more lax around the ter- at the turn of the decade, um, which is why the Vampire Lovers, which came out in 1970, is much more sensual, I'll say, than some of the films from the 60s. <laughs> Nicely done. Yes, well chosen. <laughs> So, yeah, this film was a co-production between Hammer and American International, um, and they just they really wanted to make a vampire movie with more explicit sexual content to take advantage of that uh, relaxed censorship. So they decided to adapt Carmilla, the 1872 Sheridan Le Fanu novella, which predates Dracula by 26 years, by the way. Um, oh. None yeah. of the credit. <laughs> <laughs> Harry Fine and Michael Stile were the producers, and they basically worked with the film screenwriter Tudor Gates in adapting the novella. And they had sent the script to the chief censor of the BBFC named John Trevelyan, and he was like, y'all can't do this. There's too much lesbianism, blah, 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 blah. The way they got out of it was by saying, well, it's in the novella and we can't change that. I love that for adaptations. Ah, oh, sorry, we can't change it. It's in the book. But yes, I mean, that, that, that is kind of your primer on Hammer Horror and also the, how this film came to be, which also went on to kickstart kind of a wave of sexual and sometimes lesbian vampire films. Yeah, because this film is positioned at an interesting time in history, right? Like 1970s is right on the cusp of the sexual revolution. So women were increasingly getting more rights. They were being outspoken with the women's lib. And so some people have actually interpreted this film as being a response, like a male response to the rise of feminism and saying like, well, we should have these sexy ladies, but then we can punish them by like murdering them. (laughs) But then other people say, oh, well, it's actually just a reflection of the changing times where women are increasingly seen as uh, sexual agents who have, you know, the capacity to be villains because they don't have to be damsels in distress. So people have read this film and subsequent lesbian vampire films through these dual lenses. And I'm very interested to have the conversation about who you think this film is for. Men, women, I mean, the obvious Tostitos answer is why not both but that's less interesting the tostitos like the chip company yeah haven't you seen that little that meme with the girl is that them like... i thought that was for taco i thought that was oh. for taco shells ah oh, fuck maybe it's for tacos. <laughs> i i thought he was trying to imply like tostitos is like like the given like like, like the obvious answer like <laughs> come on people the obvious tostitos answer <laughs> that's some weird fucking metaphor that you were trying to do which you're just referencing a meme Correct, yes. This is a visual medium, is it not? Can you not see me? Wait, can you guys not see me? (laughs) Well, because I think whenever I think of female vampires, yeah, I often think of like the brides of Dracula. You know, they're always the 
I mean, again, I say always, but they're usually the hinch women that just come in to, I mean, it's so funny. I'm basing this off of like the, uh, the, the, um, Bram Stoker's Dracula. The Coppola one, right? Yeah. Where they're just there to go lick Keanu Reeves' nipples and like bite him a little bit and fly away. Do we know if there had been a, in film, Yes, absolutely. But uh, there have been female vampires, but like one as prominent as this, where she's the prota- uh, I guess anti-hero of her own film. Yes, Dracula's Daughter from 1936. Oh my god, it's so good. Oh, well, there you go. It's one that we will cover in the future because it's probably the most prominent example of a lesbian-coded female vampire who is the. I mean, in this case, it's literally like a sequel to Dracula. And she's like his daughter, so Dracula never actually appears, but it's very much her trying to find a way to cure her vampirism, aka her lesbianism, by like, oh, Mary Beth, would you say that she's trying to do it by like finding a man? Yeah, because it's like, it's talking about like curing her vampirism and by extension lesbianism by finding a dude and like stopping drinking blood. Yeah, it's very interesting. Very well regarded. Like, it, it makes it sound like, oh, gross, that's not good for, like, the queer community, but it's surprisingly graceful. That's a good way to describe it, as graceful. And I always think it's funny with these vampire movies. I always feel like they have to qualify female vampires with, like, daughter of Dracula. Like, Dracula has to be mm-hmm. in the title a lot of the time. And that I, there's something about that with Countess Dracula, which is another Ingrid Pitt movie um, from Hammer. But this is one, too, where it's like vampire lovers. There isn't any connotation with Dracula. It's kind of like letting it exist on its own rather than as part of like an important, well-known story. Well, but this is tied to an established property. It's just not as well-known of, of, of a property. Well, yeah, but I mean, it's not even advertising the fact, right? It's not saying like the vampire lover is an adaptation of Carmilla because yeah. I don't know. I mean, there's a lot going on in this film that I'm like really interested in because I feel like I see so much of what happens afterwards and coming back to a film that sort of sets the precedent like it's so weird to watch this 50 year old movie and be like oh okay yeah I see these tropes that it's doing I've seen this before and then you realize I think this is where the trope originates and there's something startling about that when you're coming to it five decades later yeah, I mean, I, I mean, because this is the first in a, I'm gonna, say, it's called the Karnstein trilogy because it's all, they're all films based on the novella Carmilla, but they're not related in any shape, way, or form by plot. Like they're just like it's almost like um, I was gonna say it's like Argento's Three Mothers trilogy, but I guess those are even more connected than this. A little, but it's nice to kind of see like again 1970s Britain. Just kind of be like, fuck it. Like, let's get explicit with this queerness in these films. And also, we're going to make... I mean, we'll talk about it when we get to the end of the film. Because I love the character of... Uh, well, what, what do we want to call her? We want to call her Marcilla, Carmilla. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, she technically has three different names. So I'm I'm calling her Marcilla for the first act. And then Carmilla for the rest of it. And then Mercala for the third act. Okay. No, not even Mercala. Just... Well, Mercala is her actual name. <laughs> Blah. Okay, whatever. Um, Ingrid Pitt's character <laughs> um, it is such like a force in this film until the ending when she just sits there and just lets herself get killed. It's really refreshing. Now, it is one of those things where I kind of wish I had more knowledge. I had seen more vampire films, especially with females, 
pre-1970, but it does feel quite revolutionary watching this film if you put yourself in that 1970s mindset. Yes, yeah, I will agree. I mean, I've got, as I mentioned, kind of two opposing points of view. So, like, some people see this film as very, very progressive, and they think that Carmilla is, like, a really strong, interesting character. And then other people are like, uh, this this movie is basically all about heterosexuals co-opting and, like, interceding to prevent lesbian love affairs happening so i think it's interesting in both of those regards like the film is actually doing a very tricky balancing act yeah i would agree with that because i was having that i was wrestling with that while i was watching i was thinking oh okay this is really cool and progressive but in the way it ends but then uh, daughter of dracula ends in a similar way Sorry, spoilers. Um, but it's I always, it's like so complicated to think of like so what does it mean that these like these lesbian vampires are killed at the end? Like, is it just because they need to like conform to the ideas and like yeah. don't want to be too revolutionary? Like what? And that's something I really do think like a lot about, especially with these kinds of films. Yeah. Well, I guess because I'm thinking to myself, well, doesn't Dracula die at the end of Dracula? But you know, Most then often, yeah, yeah. Yeah, but then like Hammer Horror is like you know making nine or whatever Dracula films with Christopher Lee. So. <laughs> I mean, I guess that's the big difference, right? A lot of these lesbian films end up being one and done. So we get to, as I've said before, we play outside of the sandbox, kind of like melodramas did, where you can have these transgressive, powerful women, but then they've got to come back into the parameters of society and conventional notions and be murdered by the end. And unlike their male counterparts, they don't get sequels. Well, okay, but so so going back to your question about who is this for, because I'm curious about that too, because even when you, I mean, obviously you're not going to have like a bunch of female directors directing like lesbian vampire films in the 70s, but this is a film that is predominantly like a very, it's a very queer film directed Mm -hmm. by a man written, now granted, of course, this man would also go on the next year to do a trans storyline with Dr. Jekyll and Sister Hyde. Yeah, but also written by three men. I mean, there's. I even had a quote from Pitt where she's like, I mean, she she's apparently like an exhibitionist. She doesn't care about her body. She's like, yeah, look at it, it doesn't matter. But cool. she, she was like, oh yeah, I don't definitely felt like they like the producers were always on set because they just wanted to see me naked. And they did a closed set for some of the nude scenes, but she was like, yeah. So one day I was walking by in my robe and I just opened it up and went wee, and they were in a good mood the rest of the day. I love her so much. <laughs> I mean, I think there's a reason that she ended up becoming, like, an icon of, like, feminism around this time. But I think also, like, a huge queer icon for, like, lesbian viewers. Also gay male viewers. I love her. Oh, there we go. Yeah. She reminds me a lot of, um, I don't know if you caught this, Joe, but of Sophie Marceau. Yeah. It's a big fucking hair, man. Oh, God, I love a 70s hair. Oh, my God. I was obsessed. I was like, how do I get my hair to be that beautiful bump and, like, that sleek? (laughs) Right? It's the Sexy. original bump, but no it's bump it. Exactly. Oh, it looks so good. And her eyeliner. <laughs> yeah. Like uh, the costuming, the hair, and the makeup in this film are exquisite. And again, 1970. So good. <laughs> I know. Well, do we want to talk about anything more before I, I have a little bit more in the filming and then go into the plot? Yeah. Okay. Go for it. Yeah. Um, so yeah, let's just dive into this. Um, basically, um, they film The Vampire Lovers at Elstree Studios um, in the in early 1970. Um, it's produced in a relatively low budget of, oh my god, £165,227. Um, <laughs> That's incredibly specific. It's very specific. It is the final Hammer film, though, to be financed with American money. Most of their later films were backed by Rank or EMI, which I guess it's kind of like what y'all have in Canada, where like 
the government funds it. I don't know. Oh, uh, okay. Yeah. I don't know. Sure. It is released on October 4th, 1970. We're looking at a runtime of 91 minutes. Rotten Tomatoes, I mean, again, it's 1970, so there weren't many reviews, but we're looking at a 67% with an average score of 5.3 out of 10 and a letterbox score of 6.4 out of 10 because this film does have quite a few fans. That seems low to me. I'm surprised. Yeah, that does seem low to me, too. I mean, I gave it a three. I liked a lot of this film. I felt like it... Well, we'll talk about it when we get more into the plot, but um, it felt a, like a lot of um, style over substance for me. But hmm. maybe when we talk about the themes that are involved, I, my mind will be changed. I, basically, I was really captivated for like parts of it, but it was like sporadic, where I was like, okay, cool, we're here. Oh, okay, now we have these other characters I don't care about. Oh, but, like, oh, uh, Ingrid Pitt's back. Cool, we're good. <laughs> yeah. Honestly, this one needed to jettison about 50% of its male cast, and it'd be a hell of a lot stronger. 100% agree. That's Yeah, that, that's exactly where I'm coming from, too. I think my review, I even put, like, Ingrid Pitt is amazing. Why is everyone else so boring? Yeah. I will one-up you. I will say that Ingrid Pitt is amazing, and also uh, the character, the governess, the Madame Perrodeau. Oh, oh my yeah. gosh, mm-hmm. yeah. I was like, oh, I kind of wish that she was the other female lead, because I know, I know that Emma is supposed to be kind of the naive waif who falls into the love spell of Carmilla, but I was just like, ugh, Madame it- Perrodeau is such a better foil. So, okay, I was trying to figure out who the lovers were, because I, I, I know who they were, but at the same time, I was like, oh, I thought there was going to be like a couple of les, like a two very like, distinct lesbian vampires hunting people. I didn't no. realize it was going to be her preying on these little waifish people, yeah. and then there's Perrodeau, and so I was like, I was a little bit, I was a little bit disappointed by that, but that was only because of my own expectations. But I thought it was going to be like two lesbian vampires against the yeah, world. like a like a couple who preys on people. Wouldn't yeah, that be amazing. Yes, that's, no, that's exactly what I thought too. Instead, we get kind of a pseudo love triangle, except because Perrodeau is essentially like hypnotized. She's hypnotized, right? Like that's what yeah, we're more or less. Yeah, it might help though. The reason that we're we're latching onto Peridot is because she's played by Kate O'Mara. Who is who's done a lot of Hammer horror? Um, yeah, I, I think she's most known for the horror. God damn it, the horror of Frankenstein. So she might have already like when she got this, she might have been like, "Cool, I know what's up." Yeah, she seems very in tune with what this film is trying to accomplish. But I also like I just find her so striking like she is a great visual contrast in mm-hmm. a different way to ingrid pitt and i think they're both absolutely stunning in this movie she's very angular like i i get like a yeah. like hypothetically if we remake this film it's sophie marceau like and the world's not enough like era and adina menzel oh, oh. yeah i like and like the ang- like she's angular and also i feel like she's much more traditional looking in terms of her hairstyles mm-hmm. and i feel mm-hmm. like Carmilla has a very like modern seventies vibe to her, even though I know the movie takes place in, like in what the eight. 15, I, I, I think it, I think it's yeah because well, the, the when the movie starts it's the late 1700s but okay. then Baron Hartog is like old by the end of the movie so I think yes. it's yeah it, it's it's in the 1800s 1800s and so but she looks so 70s like she has that 70s look but then yes. only on the other hand Kate O'Mara looks much more like kind of. And Scarecrow's a gothic traditional. Yes. Yeah. Despite yeah. this not being a very dark movie, it's actually brightly lit for most of it. Mm-hmm. It's yeah. mostly daytime, right? Which I, I appreciated that change of pace for a vampire film because it's not what you would expect. I was going to say, I was going to wonder if we could bring this up because I like, 
I love like the rules of vampires and a lot of, I think a lot of hammer horror movies from what I've gathered from research and in the, the internet is that there are a very specific list of rules. And I think they, they like Dracula and those films were really important in setting up the rules of the vampire. You always know, you know, you have the cross will scare them. Mm-hmm. Um, garlic keeps yeah. them away, stake through the heart, cut off their head, and the daylight thing. So I really like that kind of subversion of like, yeah, she's in a co- she sleeps in a coffin at some point, but it's not as gothic-y and as, as dark. It's a little bit more like she's a different kind of vampire and plays with those expectations of what a vampire can and can't do. Well, mm-hmm. and I think that that's, I mean, because I, I had mentioned at the top of the episode that um, Carmilla, the, the novella predated Dracula by 26 years, but there were other vampire novels before Carmilla even. Mm-hmm. And so the, the the thing is, yeah, you have Dracula, and I think maybe it's because it was the movie. I mean, you had Nosferatu, the film, and then, you know, the universal Dracula picture. That I think, though, that put in the mainstream of, as to what a vampire was. I will say that I had to Google, like, the garlic flowers because i was like does garlic bloom like i had no yes, fucking it does. clue <laughs> it does it does uh, but yeah no, i i really appreciated that too because it's just not something that like you know when you're going into any film especially one that is 50 years old you're like okay i kind of pretty much know the rules of what i'm gonna get here and that wasn't the case with this one. So at least in that respect, it kept me on my toes. Yeah, there's enough innovation to the mythology to be kind of like a fascinating look back for those of us who have seen these rules replicated about a million times over. I like that the film doesn't spend a shit ton of time being like, okay, this is how we're completely different compared to a lot of like modern films where they're so desperate to be edgy (laughs) like oh well they can go out in sunlight but not natural sunlight it has to be like sunlight filtered through a pink cloud and you're just like shut the fuck up wait is that a real thing no but i am thinking of a couple of like more contemporary films that have tried to do something mary like that so i think joe i don't know if we've talked about this on patreon a main feed or offline so i recently watched this movie called the forsaken from like 2000 2001 have you seen this movie mary beth Okay, it has like two of the Roswell boys in it, or one of them, whatever. Basically, it's near dark, only with teenagers, and terrible. Yeah, it's really bad. But there's like, it it clearly thinks it's really clever, and there's literally this whole like 10 minute scene where the Roswell guy is like, everything you think of me about vampires, it's wrong. It's stupid. That's all fairy tales and bullshit. This is the real vampires. And he goes through this like 10 minute monologue of like what their mythology is. And it's so convoluted and it's so fucking pretentious. And it's like, you could have just done the Dracula rules, dude. Like it's totally fine. <laughs> I like, And yeah. I hate that too. Cause like, I feel like you can easily like this movie shows you can break those rules, but you don't have to be like, it's so different. Look yeah. how cool we are. We're unique. Like mm-hmm. there's so many ways. And there's a lot of like more contemporary examples, like 30 days of night. Yeah. That, create vampires that are so fucking different and they just instead of just being like oh well there's a couple different weird things they're still human they just kind of just go into it and make them total monsters and i know this is about being sexy and human but i do love when vampires are just full-on monsters and not the sex like the sex sexual figures that we always they're kind of conditioned to think of them as i agree because i will confess that vampires and zombies are like the two subgenres that i'm like i don't really need to see any more of that because i feel like i've just seen so much of it played out like how a lot of people feel about slasher films is how i feel about like zombies and vampires Mm. i would like to get something like vampire lovers with male vampires that's not just a david dakota trasher piece (laughs) <laughs> how dare you sir i'm sorry but no i mean like if we could get like some kind of like i mean like i think the most recent example of, a, of an innovative vampire film is um joe begos's bliss yeah but 
like I would like something like that that's not punk and very gay. <laughs> Uh, well, if listeners know of anything that meets these criteria, feel free to let us know. There's probably something out there that we're just missing. Probably so. Anyway, okay, let's go into this plot. All right, so bear with me if you don't like the way I do some of the names. We <laughs> open on Baron Joaquin von Hartog, played by Douglas Wilmer, and I'm going to just call him Baron von Hartog for the rest of this episode. That's yep, fair. That's perfect. So he is watching as a shrouded vampire rises from the grounds of a foggy German castle. Because this movie is set in Germany. Also, I think, I feel like this prologue set me up for a movie that I didn't get. Like, I was expecting the movie to be something very different. Because as much as I love, like, everything Ingrid Pitt does, I think visually and with the vampire lore, this was my favorite part of the film. Yeah, it does set you up for a different kind of movie, particularly that really striking image of the almost vent-like fog coming out of the grave, and then the refusal to show us the vampire. That was what I liked, is the tease, oh, we're basically going to show you someone under a sheet, and they're moving very mysteriously, and I like the delay. It It raised my anticipation levels a lot. Well, what about the, the, the additional mythology of they have to sleep with their shroud? Definitely unique. It does not come back. <laughs> yeah, that was my... I was a little bit confused about that part. Like, they felt like two very different movies because <laughs> it has the prologue, like, that kind of prologue aspect, and then it goes to the party. Yeah. And I'm like, wait, 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 wait. Did I miss something? Did I blink and miss something? And, yeah, like, and... how did we get from one to the other? Yeah, I was very <laughs> confused about that. And the shroud thing I thought was so interesting. But again, I was like, oh, we can see Carmilla. Like, though that's not yeah. anything, right? Mm-hmm. Right? So, Where's her shroud? Yeah. Maybe it's sewn, in, maybe it's sewn into her dress. Maybe. <laughs> Wouldn't that no. be cool? If, that would be so cool if she had her shroud sewn into her clothes. I know it's like, going too far, but that would no, be No, no, no. That, that would be good because also when we, when we see the cutaways later when he's staking all the vampires, like none of them have their shrouds. Or m- maybe they're sleeping on them and they're just not wrapped in them. Maybe. But I was also confused because like there was, I think it was the woman who was wrapped in the shroud who looked like a creepy ghost with a sheet on her head. And then mm-hmm. all of a sudden, he takes her shroud, right? And that's how he gets her in the house. Yeah, it's actually an inconsistency. Like, okay. he takes the shroud, and then she has it later. And you're like, but wait, are there two shrouds? What's going on? I thought that maybe she has to leave a piece of her shroud. Because, mm. mm, I don't know. I do love, though, that whenever <laughs> when he's like, uh, I challenge the monster to reclaim its shroud. And he's just in the castle, like, waving the shroud out the window. <laughs> yeah. He's basically like, hey, bitch, I've got your shroud. Come up and get it. <laughs> and I'm like, wait, how did you reach it? Yeah. I think you, no, because she went out to go kill the dude at the bar. And so when she did that, he went outside and grabbed the That's shroud right. okay. from the cemetery. So I just, remember, I just remember him pulling it through the window and it looked like he yeah. was waving a white flag of surrender. And I thought that was kind of funny. Yeah. How funny would it have been if he just had, like, you know those garbage picker things that people use when they oh don't want to, like, actually reach down? He just has one really long one. He's like, like a really grab long the shroud. Yeah. Oh, my God. <laughs> I have one one thing I wanted to mention that it just made me laugh is I absolutely love that this movie has the trope of a guy getting drunk, going out to pee, and then getting attacked by the monster. Oh, yeah. I just, that trope always makes me laugh, and it's funny to see it in this movie, because I, I, for some reason, I'm like, this feels like a new thing, but nope. It's mm-hmm. not, and it's hilarious. I wonder if that's some of that, lo- maybe that's also like, I mean, I could be wrong, but like testing the boundaries of censorship, because I feel like yeah. watching someone pee into the grass maybe also wouldn't be something that was kosher. 
Yeah. It's yeah. also interesting that this like this opening scene sets us up for a lot of different things, doesn't pay them all off. But I do like that it doesn't give us a vampire attack immediately either, right? Like, it doesn't show us this initial attack. It just the barmaid opens the door and there's the guy and he just like falls over dead. You're like, oh, wow, you really just don't want to show us what this vampire looks like until the title card decapitation. Which is awesome. Which is great. Oh, God. <laughs> There's good decapitations in this movie. No, I literally wrote, I was like, oh, he decap. Oh, it looks good! Because <laughs> you kind of, again, I feel like this is what we as, like, dumb millennials are bringing to this 50-year-old movie. Like, oh, I didn't think the special effects would be good. Oh, I thought it'd be schlocky. And you're like, no, motherfucker, this movie is good for a reason. Yeah. Exactly. Okay, so we got our title card, and then as Mary Beth mentioned, we just are at an extravagant party all of a sudden. <laughs> so we are introduced to General von Spleindorf, played by Peter Cushing, as well as his daughter Laura, played by Pippa Steele, and then she has a friend named Emma, Madeline Smith, and Emma has a father named Roger Morton, played by George Cole. So we basically get to know almost everybody who's important right off the top. I was writing down so many names. <laughs> I just, I ended up forgetting. I was like, I just gotta look at their outfits. I'll get it eventually. Like, <laughs> their, their names have like three parts to their names i was like for god's sake well it's yeah because again like the mo- the movie's in like three stages right it's it's like the, the 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 stalking of laura then the stalking of emma then the man going after um marcella mm-hmm. and so we get all of those characters pretty much in this first scene <laughs> Yes, and then a bunch of them we just forget all about. Like, I did not expect to see Baron von Hotdog again, because it seemed like we were just done with him. But then that prologue would literally serve no purpose, so that he does come back at least, because he's supposed to be the Van Helsing of the movie, right? Okay, I I was just going to say, he's like, he's the Van Helsing of the film. Right, or whatever his equivalent is in the novella. But yeah, that's that's 100% what that is. There but it's it's also like, you know, it's like happenstance. They're like, "Oh, by the way, we have this guy who also like encountered this vampire in this castle that's like I guess within carriage driving distance." Oh yeah, the geography in this movie makes no sense at all. Yes. Best to leave that alone. Oh, when when we get to Emma and why Marcilla decides to like go to her when Whatever. Okay, sorry. We'll continue. Okay, I'm got, I think we have a similar issue that I'm excited to talk about because I was like, am I just a moron? Like, am I, am no. I just like not understanding this movie? But yeah. this makes me feel a little bit better. Yeah. The, the movie either is far more sophisticated than we realize or it maybe took a few jumps in logic and you just have to fill in the gaps. Exactly. It's <laughs> fine. Uh, I can do that. Yeah, so basically Emma and Roger Morton are leaving the party. So it's like, hey, good to meet you. We don't know if you're going to be important. We'll see you later. And then the general's new neighbor, the countess, played by Dawn Adams, as well as her daughter, Marcilla, played by Ingrid Pitt, arrive. And they cause quite a stir among all of the young men at the party. So this idea that sexuality and attractiveness as a lure is immediately confirmed the minute that the vampires walk into the room is the countess i I didn't know if the countess was a vampire we have no idea i we don't know who she is and we don't know who the who the definite vampire is who's on the horse the whole movie oh my god okay cool thank you we'll talk about that too because i was like wait no we we don't know who that is is. dracula boy like what is happening i don't know but i got the impression that the countess is basically who peridot would have been yes she's like a renfield 
Yes, exactly. But mm. since she already has the Countess, that's why she kills Peridot later. Yeah. And part okay. of part of the criticisms that people have of this film as an adaptation is that it's actually almost more of an adaptation of Dracula in that regard. So this mm-hmm. idea that there is a man who's at the top, that he's got Renfield-like servants, or that that's what vampires do. This These are new additions that are not really present in Carmilla. Mm-hmm. And it's also like the Laura character is actually the main protagonist and she is the hero of her own story. There is no Carl character. Oh, and so they really just wanted to take the lesbianism. Well, and that's one of the criticisms of it. Yeah. (laughs) Is that they basically introduce a bunch of like men and in some cases, heroic men to diffuse the lesbianism of the final film. Gotcha. Yeah. Yeah. So these women arrive at the party. Everybody is like, Ooh, who's that? Very interested. I want to dance with them. But before anything can happen, the man in black arrives. He is played by John Forbes Robertson and he whispers something to the countess. She looks momentarily dazed. And then she tells the general that she has to leave because she has a sick or dying friend. And she asks if he can look after Marcella in her absence, which this is clearly their like, regular bit that they do they just go to parties and they're like oh i'm so sorry can my marcella stay with you it's like the wedding crashers only from like the 1800s uh yeah so of course the general being a nice guy says you know naturally marcella can stay with us so we move into this section where marcella is now a house guest and she and laura are fast friends And I just want to give a quick shout out to Australian film critic Alexandra Heller-Nicholas, who was kind enough to send me an article that she wrote in part on this particular film called Seductive Kindness, Power, Space, and Lesbian Vampires. And one of the things that she talks about is how this particular film is different in the way that it uses space. So unlike Dracula, who worms his way into various spaces, Marcella is actually an invited guest. So she's still predatory, and she's still obviously like getting herself invited into places for nefarious purposes. But she's also kind of beholden to the traditional, like, code of conduct like she's not sneaking in through the window she's actually like cool just let me stay as a guest and then i'll eat your daughter i think that could be a commentary too on how unassuming people are about women in the time period or even now yeah and i was gonna say that especially with like in a lot of these like victorian gothic stories like women are just friends which we all know yes just friends not always true but then it's like oh these two women are just petting each other's hair it's fine like they're just two women they would never have sex with each other or kiss or fall in love and it is very interesting how it plays with that unassuming nature of women and how they think oh women could just be friends and there's like literally no idea in the in their heads that women could fall in love with each other yeah and so that's i thought that was a really interesting way that they play with carmilla kind of preying on that friendship but in a way i also saw her looking for friendship too and we can talk yeah. about that later like she's very complex in that way and yes. so i liked how she was kind of playing with the expectations of what people expect from women and their relationships no that that's good too i I think you're right she is looking for companionship my question is because she she kills laura and we'll get there in a minute but spoiler (laughs) but (laughs) clearly her designs though for emma later are not to kill her 
but rather to have her be a permanent companion, right? Or or, or is Emma doomed to die from the get-go? I thought she was going to be a companion because she took her out of bed. Like, she didn't just leave her there. She brings her along. It's a little sad. With Laura, Marcella is definitely like, you are a meal. I am done with you. Wipes the napkin and leaves the house. <laughs> like, she just yeah. jets the minute that Laura dies. <laughs> Whereas with Emma, it actually seems like she does have a plan to take her with her. So I think you're right. Both of you. So before Laura dies, though, she does get haunted by some sexy dreams. And I will say, I thought this was the most visually compelling part of this movie is this nightmare sequence Mm -hmm. where we see a superimposed cat. Hint, hint. It kind of looks a bit too much like a wolf. I would have rather it actually have more cat-like characteristics. But the cat is also partially Marcilla, who is biting her. And it's very, like, pussy. He's biting well, me. Oh, <laughs> oh my God. I didn't even put that together. <laughs> I didn't either. All I could think of was the moment in Bram Stoker's Dracula, directed by Francis Ford Coppola, where Lucy, Mina's friend, has sex with a wolf. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. And mm-hmm. I was like, this is definitely, like, this movie, I think, set that up. Because I looked, I just, I, before we did this, I looked to make sure, but in the book, Bram Stoker's Dracula, there's a wolf, but there isn't any, like, sex oh or no kind right. of... that that that's coppola <laughs> and like i i mean i loved it because i'm weirdo but also at the same time i definitely i think it was borrowed and this i saw this and like oh this is definitely where coppola was borrowing from just because mm-hmm. like she's getting ravished by yes. a furry creature and like i mean come on that orgasm like it was like she's having orgasms no it, yes. it, it, yeah. it, it, they're pushing the boundaries of the censorship but obviously they, they can't be showing like flat out fucking between two women in this movie Or a woman and a wolf cat. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. (laughs) I also do love, though, too, because every time someone gets sick in this movie, it's always a woman. And they're like, you silly bitch. There's nothing there. (laughs) You're just having a nightmare. Oh, my God. Uh, Yeah, I love it when I can't remember if it's Morton or the doctor. I'll confess for about the first half of the film, I confused them and thought they were the same character. But one of these male friends of the general shows up and he basically lists off a bunch of bullshit things that are going to cure Laura like fresh air greens and red meat and you're just like wow <laughs> oh you know it, it's very much don't take women's illnesses seriously just take her for a walk she'll be fine <laughs> but that, that's always it and again this was happening in Dracula where they're like oh yes she's into blood transfusion and rest and to be by the sea mm-hmm. and it's like you think the ocean's going to cure it? Are you serious? <laughs> and it is so fascinating how this is, becomes a commentary on like how men, women, like hysteria and mental illness, yeah. all just thought to be a weakening of the mind and that women just had weak minds that could easily unravel at any sign of stress. And really, there's only one character who ever kind of figures it out, but even he becomes the stupidest character in this movie. Looking at you, Renton. Oh god, I hated that character. He's anyway, the, he's the worst. <clears throat> he's terrible. I wanted to kick him in the shins. <laughs> <laughs> the worst. You kick him in the shin. <laughs> I don't know. Aim why. higher, I mean, Mary Beth. Aim higher. I know, but I think it was his weird stocking. Like I, I get that they're trying to be like period specific, but the stockings, like I just for some reason I was like, that's the target. Just kick him right in the shin. I don't know. Nice. It's weirdly specific. <laughs> Okay, so Marcella does reassure Laura that she's never going to believe her, and she gives her a eh, somewhere between chaste and mildly sexual kiss on the lips, and then she kisses her upper boobs. Yep. (laughs) You know, platonic. As you do, yeah. This is what girlfriends do all the time, right? It's the equivalent of, like, the pillow fight sleepover that you see in, like, movies that feature teenage girls. (laughs) Right. (laughs) 
Yeah. It's sexual and not at the mm. same time. Yeah. Not that it matters. Oh my god. I just kissed your boobs. Oh my god. Oh my god. That's so funny of me. Oh my god. We're best friends. Oh my god. I just grazed your vagina. Oh my god. Oh my god. Wow. Our vaginas graze each other. <laughs> oh. If only. Is that your I... labia? No. <laughs> I don't even know what that is. <laughs> I'm not going to lie. I could have done with a little more lady on lady action here. The It's 1970, the ad- Joe. I know, but it, it's one of those things where, again, if we were forecasting into the future and saying, right. I would like to remake this movie, I, I would like a little more hunger style action. I would actually like to know if lust of lust for a vampire or twins of evil which are the other two chapters i'll say of the karnstein trilogy if they if they feature maybe a bit more graphic lesbianism than what we see. i mean they both came out a year after this so maybe not but right you never know yeah it'd be interesting i didn't really look at how the films were received like whether people found this sensational and titillating or if they were kind of like oh finally okay we can see tits on screen yay i mean i think you could see show tits before just maybe not in the uk Maybe. Yeah. Who knows? Who knows? That, I just that was is thinking a... about adaptations of Carmilla, and there's an adaptation that came out last year. What was mm-hmm. it called? Carmilla. Oh. Yep. <laughs> it, it's, uh, That's it. It's a bad adaptation, though. They take the vampire out. Oh. Uh, what? Yeah. Because <laughs> I remember I was keeping an eye on it, waiting for it to come out to add it to our list, and then people were like, so this is just about a female house guest who falls in love with the other girl. There's no vampire. Oh. Oh, okay. Well, that's a choice. There is a Canadian web series, though, that I can't remember the name of it, but it's basically like three seasons long of like... A girl at university, and she gets a new roommate, and that roommate is like a slightly predatory vampire. Oh my god! It's apparently quite funny. That sounds awesome. But so they just made another like lesbian period piece with two white women and night. No vampires. Oh yeah, they just do it all the time. It's uh, it's lame. Yeah. Where's the gay version of that? Uh, God's country. Oh, I do like them. Oh wait, you want vampires though? Yeah, I want like a horror one. I want a horror version of that. Uh, still waiting. Okay. Okay, so, yeah, Laura is now fatally ill, so we send for Carl Ebhart, who is played by John Finch, as well as the Doctor, who is played by Ferdy Main, and they show up just in time to more or less watch her die and expose a pair of fang marks on her cleavage. And I love that Marcilla walks in and goes, oh, she's dead now. Yeah. Bye. (laughs) (laughs) And then she pieces out. She's completely gone from this castle. Yes, she is. And just in case you couldn't figure out what her deal was, this is when we travel back to Castle Karnstein and we just kind of close in a little bit on her grave. <laughs> You're like, yeah, we got it. Yeah, I was like, I, I am a cut to a grave for Marcilla Karnstein from, from the 1500s. All right. And then yeah. that's also the, when the general goes to visit Baron Hartog. But I think we just hear that. We don't see that, right? I don't think so. Yeah. He's like, I'm going to go visit Baron Hartog, who because just sure yeah they, they, he says that then you see them in the carriage coming back but there isn't like any shown dialogue well, yeah the, this was this was the transition from from stories to me was confusing because so we get that then we get like marcilla attacks some woman in the woods and then yes this is the blacksmith's wife we are told later <laughs> okay and then we're in like oh now we're in the next con where the carriage breaks down but it's like this was my issue i was bringing up earlier where it's like okay cool so now we're going to emma 
but like you're clearly within a decent like a small distance from your previous victim mm-hmm. so you could run into the general at any point in time I, I it seemed very like poor planning on her part that was my thing too i was like wait hold on she is very obviously unique looking Marcilla and Carmilla aren't that different of names, and you literally went like down the block. Yeah, <laughs> they're they're to anagrams the next... of each other. Yeah, like you went to the next castle, and we're like, oh yeah, shit, they were friends. That's that's cool. I'm like, wait, but aren't no. you all gonna run into each other? And like, didn't you meet? Like, didn't Emma I... met her at the party? Didn't she? But she was on the way out. Well, I guess um... they were like, well, the general's not gonna be having parties anytime soon because his niece is dead. So I guess it's safe. And there's no social media, so <laughs> they they can't be checking us in with each other. Honestly, I like res- I respect like the um, efficiency of Carmilla. <laughs> She's like, I'm not traveling that far. I'm going to the next house. No one knows. I'm going to the next available hottie in the next house over. <laughs> I kind of love it. (laughs) Whenever they're looking at the portrait later and Morton's like, well, she's a guest in my house. (gasps) Well, she was staying with me and Laura. I'm like, bitch, y'all didn't talk about this earlier. (laughs) Mm -hmm. It's almost like a scene from Clue where everybody realizes like, oh, wait, you had her in your house too. Yeah. (laughs) I was waiting for that moment. I was like, whenever, when is everyone going to get in a circle and click that ever like have that automatic light bulb moment? Like, oh, we're so idiot. Like we're idiotic. (laughs) (laughs) Before we move on to Emma's part of the story, I do just want to give a shout out, though, to this chase through the woods with the blacksmith's wife. I love that we get a POV killer shot in 1970, four years before Black Christmas. Yeah, yeah. We we also, because we get it a little bit later, too, when she goes to, I want to say, like, the shack outside, because... It's a POV shot, but like you see her hand outstretched as she's Mm -hmm. like reaching, going towards the building. I like that too. Yes. That's when she kills the woodsman's daughter. Yeah. (laughs) It's like, we don't even give these women names. They're just like generic peasant murdered. (laughs) Uh, But all the men get names. That's okay. Multiple part names. Yeah. Yeah. Long ass names. Baron von Hotdog. Yes. (laughs) Oh my God. Okay. So the Countess and now Carmilla orchestrate a carriage accident that literally sends their henchmen flying into the woods. <laughs> and this is also that they can get Carmilla invited into the Morton home. So she is now a guest of Emma and Mr. Morton. And just like before, Carmilla and Emma become fast friends. And this is where we get the scene that... I think divides a lot of people. So there's a very titillating dressing room sequence. Um, this this is like my favorite porn setup. Like if this was two men, I would have probably masturbated to this scene. <laughs> you like a deep tub, do you? No. So I really like. <laughs> no, I I really like it. Like my fate, my fate. So hey, sorry, Mary Beth. I really like stories in my porn. Like I don't like it when porn just starts and they're just fucking immediately. I appreciate that. So I my favorite setup, though, outside of like, oh, new roommates, like, let's have fun, is <laughs> the two best friends that like, they kind of experiment, but it's like their first time and they don't know. And like, they're kind of talking and then one of them just puts his hand on the other one's dick and it just it goes off from there. Like the setup for that is like instant boner for me. So watching this scene, I was like, oh my God, this is probably what straight men do. Like they watch scenes. Well, no, they probably just go to the sex. Um <laughs> But I really loved the setup for this. I was like, this is hot. I was getting hot and heavy watching this. I was I was watching it, and I was just like, 
this feels dirty. Like, in a good way. I was like, oh, my God. Oh, my gosh. She's got that giant sponge. Oh, my God. Oh. And then she calls her a peasant at one point, which I thought was <laughs> I'm like, oh, we're negging. We're negging. Well, I think, I, I think that Carmilla is infatuated with Emma's innocence. Like, I yeah. think. Yeah. Because Laura didn't really have that quality. And no. it is beneficial that Madeline Smith is equally as innocent as the character. But I think that's what's. Like, she's like a. It's like almost like a toy for Carmilla to play with. Yeah. But, but she respects her, I think. Um, or like she's so naive and innocent that she feels like she could guide her through the world. Yeah. That's what I thought. It seemed more like she was like, okay, I can take her under my wing and right. kind of like show her the ways of the world and also corrupt that innocence. I think yeah. I got that. Like, like I, oh, I will make her aware make of things. Her with, yeah, exactly. Like I'll teach her about sex and murder and death and everything. I do mm-hmm. like that part of the seduction is when Carmilla... Okay, so Carmilla is naked in this bath. Ingrid Pitt is absolutely stunningly gorgeous. gorgeous. She gets out and she's drying herself off. And meanwhile, Emma is getting changed for this dinner that they're about to have. And she undresses to, like, reveal 1970s era slash 18th century undergarments, which are, like, actually also kind of hot in a... Like, you'd almost see a sexy version of that in a Victoria's Secret, like, right? dress, dress with a bustier for your man kind of deal. <laughs> I was like, I'd wear that to, like, a, part, a certain kind of party. Yeah. <laughs> and it's hilarious because Carmilla's like, what are you wearing? You can't wear that shit. You've got to take all of that off and just wear the dress. And you're like, oh, scandal. The funny thing was, though, she was wearing... <laughs> If she was wearing her undergarments, the dress probably would have fit. And that thing looked like it was about to fall off, because I'm sorry, but uh, this actress does not have the tits for that dress. No. <laughs> I was going to say, unfortunately, do not have the endowment mm-hmm. to make so, that dress work. When it comes to the nudity, so Pitt was totally fine. She was like, yeah, sure, Like I'm an exhibitionist, Like go ahead and do it. They asked if they wanted a close set. She was like, I don't give a fuck, like, do whatever you want. Smith <laughs> is the one who insisted on the close set, and she okay. said... She goes, Ingrid was a formidable lady, but was very solicitous to me, sensing my innocence and ignorance. I hated the nude scenes then and ever more so today, because this is a more contemporaneous review. I was cajoled into removing my top and was reassured that it was only for the Japanese market. Oh. Oh, Oh, I hate these stories. But, but, so then, you know, I'm I'm sure there were some people, Joe, that said that this was exploitative. Literally read one that said pornographic. And I was like, it's a naked woman. Like, Mm -hmm. let's calm our tits. So this is Pitt's (laughs) mindset on being called an exploitative film. How can you be exploited if you know what you are doing, have the opportunity of backing out, and are getting paid to do the job? I had a good body and had no inhibitions about flaunting it. There was no body off camera pointing a gun at my head. Maddie Smith wasn't too certain at first, and we were given the chance to pull out at any time. As it turned out, we had fun doing the scenes and found the attitude behind the camera highly amusing. They were all frightened we might decide to give it a miss and made sure not to appear prurient. They treated us as if it was an everyday occurrence to have two fanciable females frolicking about in the all together. Okay, I'm loving Ingrid Pitt. I feel really (laughs) bad. Uh. Yeah, for Smith. Well, because Pitt's saying, oh, no, we were fine. Like, it's all good. Smith later is like, no, like, I was forced into doing that. Yeah, like, I regret my choice. Yeah, I didn't really know what I was signing up for. That's unfortunate. Yeah. But... To take Smith's side, too, when it's like, oh, you have the opportunity to back out. Okay, well, Smith is a more inexperienced actress in a yeah. set full of men. It's politics, then. Because, like, what 
what would they have done if she was like, I'm not doing that? Like, yeah. it could have potentially ruined her career, blah, blah, blah. So, yeah, I 100% believe that she probably was cajoled into it and then, but like, put on a good face for it. Yeah, I would agree. Especially because, like, like you said, and it, it's the same rings true now. Like, if you say no, you're automatically labeled as difficult and, like, mm-hmm. yeah. not good to work with. So, you really have to tolerate a lot of things that you might not want to. And, like, I'm, I mean, Ingrid Pitt, queen, but, you know, I'm, not everyone can have her... Amazing yeah. confidence. Mm. <laughs> well, it's, it, it's interesting because this scene actually reminded me a little bit of The Handmaiden because there's a similar yes! kind of sensual yeah. bath scene mm-hmm. in that. And when we covered that film, we talked at length about the extent that the women were made to feel comfortable, not just with the clothes set, but like, you know, they, they workshopped it. They made everybody... They made sure that everybody knew what was going to happen and that they were very comfortable and they did it in a minimal amount of takes. And I think it's like the changes in the way that we cover sex scenes from clearly the 1970s through to like more contemporary films. And even, I'm just going to say it, I think there's an argument to be made for having more female and lesbian directors because you're probably going to approach the sexuality and make your actresses feel more comfortable as well. One hundred and ten thousand percent. Yeah. So basically, the scene. I mean, it changes now <laughs> in context, but in the moment, it's kind of sexy and playful and fun, and you can start to see their relationship developing. And of course, this is when the nightmares begin for Emma. So she doesn't sleep well, but she is comforted because unlike Laura, she actually has a governess who lives in the house with her, who is teaching her proper German. And this governess is Madame Perrodeau, played by Kate O'Mara. Queen! So conveniently enough, Morton leaves on a trip to Vienna the next day so that we now only have the girls and the staff in the house. So there's a power vacuum that Carmilla is happy to fill. No, like she goes oh i'll look after her as if she's my own sister and he gives her this look that's like sure bitch <laughs> just don't touch her she's virginal we do get I, I, so this is another like i love this characterization of carmilla there's a part where she's reading the book the romance novel and she goes um she's reading the book and she's like oh pulling her gently towards him he showered her sweet upturned face with manly kisses and she laughs shuts the book and goes this is a silly book (laughs) (laughs) this is heterosexual pornography i don't like it goodbye (laughs) i loved that she has like a like a like a a lack of understanding about humanity that I, it doesn't like hammer into it too much in the film, but like there's little notes like that, that I really, really liked. I think those moments help to reinforce to you that she, she knows what she's doing because she's been living among humans for long enough, but she also doesn't care to indulge in all of the niceties that you would expect from like social conventions. So I, I like this idea that she's almost like a guest among humans a lot of the time. Right. Yes. I was going to say, like, she feels almost like um, out of time and out of space a little Mm -hmm. bit because, Mm -hmm. like I mentioned before, the way she's dressed and the way she looks, she feels like she got, like, cut out of something else and plopped, like, back in the past 100 years and she's trying to parse her way through what it means to live in this time, Mm -hmm. which I thought was so interesting just because she felt like a more modern version of a vampire, but... Yeah, it, in the 1700s, 1700s. It's it's almost anachronistic, but may, maybe yeah. though but but maybe it's because though she's from the 1500s. So she's actually like 200 300 years old, so like it's she's learned like 
maybe that's the mindset. You know, if you've been alive for that long, you're going to be modern, quote unquote, whatever that means for any time period you're in. That's true. Yeah. I mean, you see that so much in so many vampire movies, like Twilight, LOL, sorry, had to yeah. bring it up. Um, Byzantium does that. I mean, a yeah. lot of, a lot of vampires that does that. And you're like, oh, you really guys, you guys are really hip to the trends, huh? Yeah. Exactly. <laughs> but also, can you imagine how annoying fads would be if you were going to live forever? Because you'd just be like, I can tell you this is only going to last for about five to seven years. <laughs> you guys are all going to look like keep fucking the, idiots. Same, don't ever get rid of your clothes. Just cycle through them. I feel like well, you keep coming back, so it's fine. I think that's kind of like, I mean, like I mean, going back to modern vampire films, like Only Lovers Left Alive, where it's like a state mm. of ennui. Yeah, I mean, I think one of the joys about this particular film is Carmilla, like there's no conversation about how how shitty death is or like Carmilla is only interested in living and almost like living for the present. Like she's so desperately in love with these women that she's meeting. And maybe it's just like, I'm, I'm just hungry and I really want to bite you right now. Right. Or she's so desperate for some kind of companionship. I sometimes wish that we got a bit more of what her interior life was like, but what we see from the external side of it is she's, playful and just kind of having fun like she could have just eaten emma and moved on to the next person but she chooses to stay and just hang out and like role play as a best friend slash girlfriend and so this brings to a point that i wanted to talk about about vampires and bisexuality (laughs) because i think about this a lot with vampires and sexuality because i mean and this is not to undermine the fact that this is an explicitly lesbian movie like by no means do i want to undermine that fact but I think in a lot of vampire movies in general, the vampire is depicted as not having a preference for gender in terms of the blood that they suck. Mm. And they have this, you know, the penetration of men, of women, of whoever they can to feed off of. And, you know, there are some arguments that some vampires are inherently asexual and like the se- the sexual aspects just come from the way they eat but not actually in sexual acts, which again, like there's so many different kinds of vampires and stories. It's kind of hard to like, at this point to kind of make a through line, but it is really fascinating to me that yes, vampires have sexuality, but there is this inherently kind of like genderless aspect to their sexuality where they don't care who it is. They just need to eat and they'll do whatever they need to do and seduce whoever they want to eat. And I love that. Just like thinking about that. And I thought about that, especially jumping a little bit ahead when she kills, um, Renton? Trenton? Mm-hmm. Renton, yeah. <laughs> and, like, she seduces him. And, you know, like, like and it kind of shows an, like, a side of bisexuality where it's, like, she can, you know, seduce him and it doesn't mean that she loves him by any means, but, like, she's able to kind of play with her sexuality in a way of survival. Right. Which is another really interesting twist about, like, that bisexuality is survival, which is maybe a little bit squicky, but yeah, it's fascinating to me because I am bisexual, and I, there's not a lot of bisexuality on screen. There's more recently, but it's harder to find. Right, so, bi-, bi erasure is much more common than like like out out front and center bisexuality. Yeah, yeah, and so like I guess I just kind of look for bisexuality in a lot of things, like and vampires especially. I feel like it's not too hard of a comparison to draw. No, again, like I don't want to say because like, this is obviously much more like, like a lesbian vampire movie, but there are these kind of interesting tones of bisexuality and bisexuality and survival for vampires that I wanted to do more thinking on because it's like something I've never really thought about before until seeing this movie. Hmm. Yeah. And I really like that idea and also it's a weird way to think about bisexuality that could be problematic but it's fascinating. Yeah, it doesn't make it less worth Yeah, like it's fascinating to think of bisexuality as a, as like how vampires get to eat. Yeah. Like yeah. they don't have to, they, they don't 
see themselves as straight or as gay. They see themselves as opportunistic. And hmm. yeah. I, I mean, I, I think, and I, we don't have to go into this either, but cause like, I, I, I would almost even view that more as pansexual too, which I mean, I, I guess yeah. it's more of like an offshoot of, but I, I don't want to say it's, anything. It's yeah. It's, I mean, like it's, it is kind of like, it depends on your preference. Bisexual just makes it seem more like gender binary and right. pansexual There's is no, not. But yeah. again, like I don't necessarily, I think it's preference. I mean, again, I don't want to undermine anyone else's sexuality because, like, I don't care about gender either. But like you said, it could be considered pansexuality as well. Yeah, for sure. But no, I, I think that's a really good way of looking at it, and you're 100% right. I do think in the case of this film, as you said, it's more explicitly lesbian because she definitely seems to be using the men when she's seducing them as pure, like, they're the objects as yeah. opposed to the at least Emma, who is more there definitely seems to be more of an emotional connection there. Yeah. Exactly. When she's like, Hold me, I was like, Oh. Yeah. <laughs> Wait, like, there's a lot of those like really quick like, like kind of like quick but sweet moments of empathy that you have for her a little yeah. bit. And you're like, Are you just being seductive or are you actually this way? But yeah, like you said, she does manipulate men more for her gain. But it makes me think a lot about how in like other vampire movies that are like, you know, vampires Despite mm-hmm. being really sexual and pretty queer, are kind of like coded heterosexual for the most part, especially like yeah. the Byronic vampire, which is like the Draculas that we see in like the very nice suits and like the slicked back hair and like they're very mysterious and they're always preying on women in night and like diaphanous nightgowns and things, <laughs> and candelabras and dark castles. And so it is so interesting to me to see this inversion of the female vampire outside of daughter of dracula that is like very purposefully sexual like it's her boobs are out and like she is like owning a sexuality that i don't think is owned as much in a lot of vampire films at least from that era and i'm just saying that we're getting this in 1970 but where is my explicitly gay male (laughs) vampire film (laughs) all righty trace (laughs) write it trace come on i dare you clearly no the world's not ready it's 2020 um It's only 2020. Um, no, I, I think that's a really, really great outlook, and you're 100% correct. I don't think it's, I don't think, like, there's anything wrong with what you're saying at all. I mean, what's most interesting about vampires in general is that you can put those readings onto them, right? Because they mm-hmm. almost, they both embody sexuality, but they also defy it, or they merge and, and are liminal and fluid with it. So I kind of love the idea of vampires as a free-for-all so that however you identify, you can put yourself into it. Yeah, and yes. especially like, as vampires age, you know, there's a, I think there's a couple movies where I can't remember the names where they, they talk about like, oh, you go through fa- like phases almost. Like, okay, you experiment with your sexuality and you have forever, so why not mm-hmm. try it all? Which right, because you would is, get bored yeah. after a while, so you've yeah. got to change it up. <laughs> yeah. yeah, so I kind of love that too. Like you said, Joe, like you can kind of, they're a fluid kind of character that lets you put yourself in their shoes a lot easier because they do kind of flow in sexuality in a right. way that a lot of other characters in horror and creatures in horror really aren't allowed to do. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And then inevitably we murder them at the end of the film. So any transgression is totally forgiven. We can all just go back to being heterosexuals. <laughs> <laughs> all right. So we are up to the part where the woodsman's daughter gets murdered. And I don't have any evidence to back this up, but I think probably the most memorable visual sequence from this film is where we see Carmilla wandering through the woods in her nightgown in the fog on her way back to the Morton estate. It's just, it's so quintessentially Gothic horror that it's kind of like, wow, 
print that. I'll put it up on my wall. It's a really good visual. I st- my vote still goes to the cloaked figure in the beginning mm. in the mist. Like that's still like my favorite visual in this film. Okay. But that's up there. I mean, credit this film for having a very good visual eye, even if some of the plot mechanics are a little bit bumpy. Well, I mean, it under it undercuts its protagonist in the end of the in the end, which we'll get to that. Yeah, I do. <laughs> I think too. This is a point where like it's like Carmilla and Emma are like talk, talking about something, and Emma just prattling on, and then Carmilla's like, <laughs> "You talk such nonsense sometimes." <laughs> yeah, there, there's actually quite a bit where Carmilla is just like, "You're a bit dumb. <laughs> like mm-hmm. you need to." <laughs> this is the part where we get the interesting take on vampires in the sunlight. So. Emma's trying to get Carmilla to come into the sun and she's like, nah, I just, I don't mind it. I just don't love it. So I'm just <laughs> going to kind of stay in the shade. Thanks. And then we also get this moment where because the woodsman's daughter has been murdered, there is a passing funeral procession and they are reading a hymn and Carmilla has her weirdest moment in this movie where she basically freaks out. Like it's actually hurting her to hear this religious words. And then she, when Emma says, you know, like, oh, you're fine, calm down, she just turns to Emma and just goes, you must die. Everyone must die. See, though, I, I mean, that's weird. Like, my read on this scene, and Mary Beth, maybe you agree with Joe more, my read on it was that she actually didn't like funerals because everyone else around her would always die except for her. So that's so uh. weird. I, th- I literally thought both. I was like, okay, the hymns are, like, invading her ears, but at the same time, she's being reminded of her, her immortality and right. her loneliness. Mm. Because I think, is it in the scene where she, like, falls onto Emma and goes, hold me, hold me tightly? Is this yes. is that the point? Yeah. And, like, that's why I kind of got this feeling that she was so frustrated with hearing the hymns and how it hurt her physically, but then, like, being so reminded of her isolation and kind of going to Emma for comfort. I, and like attention and kind of like let me feel like another beating heart or a beating heart i wonder if this is i wonder if this is a turning point where she does decide that because th- you know what we talked about before oh like she kills laura but then she's clearly like has longer terms term plans for emma mm-hmm. i wonder if maybe this is maybe a turning point it doesn't feel like it but if it's meant to be where it's like oh actually i'm not gonna kill you emma i'm gonna keep you Maybe. I mean, because the very next scene is where we really start to see the impact that it's physically taking on Emma. So she confesses that she feels energized at night and tired in the day, which, of course, all of us are like, yeah, vampire (laughs) and freelance writer. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Is it vampire or freelance writer? Only Esquire knows. Yeah. So Carmilla sees this as an invitation to pull Emma's top down and give a little bit of a lick of those breasts. And Mm -hmm. (laughs) I I will confess, I find this sex scene very uncomfortable to watch because the other one is playful and sexy. And this one... Well, uh, yeah, this feels more coerced. Yeah. I was going to say, it feels like an assault. Yeah. Emma looks like a doll. Her eyes, it's like when she takes, it's like there's a special moment, it's not a special moment, woo, a particular (laughs) moment, specific moment where Carmilla is taking her down to the bed and her face just looks so terrified and like frozen, almost like dissociating. And I was like, oh, this is really... Yeah. Not good. Yeah. Don't like this at all. It's, yeah, it, 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 it's a rape scene. Yeah. Yeah, but, and, like, also, I think that's important, though, not, be, like, 
again, it's annoying because it's like lesbian sexuality is now being portrayed as predatory and that's right. really frustrating and nasty. Yep. But it's also, and like the conversation of rape revenge films, and obviously this is not a rape revenge film, but like the idea of showing a woman perpetuating sexual assault is so rare. Well, especially at this yeah. time period too. Exactly. So it's like, it's so interesting to see this kind of inter-conversation about agency and, and consent with women and again terribly having again like of course a woman who's a lesbian preventing sexual violence against another woman and making lesbians look terrible which is so frustrating but it is an interesting yeah. way to kind of right depict women's sexuality but we we almost hand wave it away right because she is the villain of this movie so it's okay for her to you know propagate terrible things but then this is also how we get a legacy of queer villains and you know as queer people we get increasingly frustrated by it because yeah. it's like this is the history that we've been giving we're always fucking monsters who use our sexuality as a terrible weapon against other people but that that's the problem with this movie though is it views carmilla as the villain when she should be the fucking hero <laughs> like I, yes! I like her in this movie i don't view her as evil i mean yes she's doing what she has to do to survive but like i get a more malicious feel from dracula whereas mm -hmm. in this one i don't feel like she's particularly evil or villainous you know i agree i got a feeling again like she's just trying to survive and make her way through mm -hmm. the centuries and just kind of like have a little bit of fun along the way like i got i thought the men were more evil and maybe that's just my perspective as a woman <laughs> in general but um i just felt like the men were so much more malicious and so much more, it felt like they were like trying to break something apart and ruin something in my mind not even ruin yeah. something but like encroach upon something that was unnecessary and again i get it you're killing women that's bad but i don't know it just felt like the men were so predatory on top of that and especially at the end that we can talk about when she looks so upset yeah and she's crying which really punched me in the gut i just think it's She's not the villain to me. Yeah. She's not. I mean, really, outside of this scene, this is the one scene that I think if you're reading the film from that, oh, it's men being scared of women's lib, this is the scene that says, well, she, look at this female villain. We give her agency. She gets rapey. She's terrible. We need to murder her. Yeah. And the rest of the film is more, I think, of that feminist perspective where it's like, look at this woman living her life, making men look stupid, seducing all the ladies. Okay, so Emma does end up crying out, and this is where we start to get the Madame Peridot show. So she shows up, and Carmilla just makes this excuse with a brooch, which is ridiculous. I loved it. I was like, that's the dumbest thing I've ever heard in my <laughs> yes. entire life. So <laughs> dumb. Look at the sharp, pointy edges on this brooch. You're like, oh. And you want it? <laughs> it? It almost seems, though, that like Carmilla herself realizes, oh, this is dumb. It's not going to fly because she just immediately turns Madame Peridot into her Renfield after this moment. <laughs> yes. Right? Yep. She's like, eh, that's not going to work for very long. So I might as well just get it over with. <laughs> so all right, I guess I'll have another one. And I, I do love to because like Carl comes by right after and he's like, oh, I want to come see Emma. And she's like, oh, we're busy today. What about yeah. tomorrow? Oh, we're also busy tomorrow. What mm -hmm. are the? Oh, why don't you come by next week? <laughs> yeah, she's so fucking stone cold. I love it. I think this is also where I was like, ah, oh, the 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 Madame Perdo character kind of injects some energy into yeah. the yeah. film that like Emma just wasn't really bringing because she's so innocent and naive. Like a little bit of comedy in a way too. No, I don't for know. sure. I Absolutely. got a little bit of comedy from her, and like a lot again. Energy. A lot it felt like much more interesting at a point when she became a more important figure. Yeah. Mm -hmm. 
So the other important figure who takes uh, a leading role at this point is Mr. Renton. He is the other servant in the house. He's played by Harvey Hall, and he is not under Carmilla's sway. So, of course, he wants to send for the doctor, and Madame Peridot's like, fuck off. You don't know what you're doing. <laughs> she It'll goes, be fine. yeah, I'll, I'll send for him. Okay. And like, puts her head back in her book. <laughs> when I, it's like, when I see fit, I'll call the doctor. <laughs> I'm like, yes, bitch. <laughs> So he retires to the pub, and I don't know if you folks would agree with this interpretation, but I called it a literal accordion mic drop when he makes a vampire <laughs> joke. It is. It was. So, it was so funny. It's an accordion mic drop. Everyone gets really quiet. I'm like, oh my god, this is amazing. So good. A vampire. We don't say vampire. It's only a joke. Not around these parts. <laughs> it's like, you want to go burn that castle to the ground then? Like, everybody knows, but nobody's talking about it. It's basically, oh, okay, yeah, there's there's a lesbian running around the woods, but we don't talk about her. <laughs> <laughs> Every town has a haunted lesbian who runs through their woods. Oh. <laughs> Attacking innocent, young, nubile-breasted women. Of yes, course. And her beautifully sheer nightgown. I do love how fact that her nightgowns are sheer and you can like kind of see her body through them. I was yes. like, I love this. I just, I love it when they just like don't even try to like make their any kind of like fake modesty. They mm-hmm. just full on lean into the sex icon mm-hmm. way and it just is very good. <laughs> but it's funny though, because I feel like even until recently, I would have looked at that and said like, you know, this is for male viewers and that's offensive. And now I, I find increasingly that I check myself and I'm like, Oh, I bet there's a bunch of women who were very much like, yes, come through, sheer nightgown. Yes. Hello. It's me. (laughs) (laughs) Hello. I am that girl. (laughs) I am she. (laughs) I think there's obviously the reading for maybe when I came out, it was meant to be kind of titillating and sexual. But I just think there's such an increase now in women reclaiming these narratives and being like, no, fuck you. Like, I think this is cool and sexy and empowering in a way that you probably didn't mean it to be. But I will feel that way because she's powerful. Like, yeah, she's owning her sexuality. Like, they view her, the, the male gaze is very obvious here. Where, like, they view her in parts and, like, the details of her, like, seeing her legs through the dress and very obviously trying to get a reaction. Mm-hmm. But I also think unintentionally they created a really amazing queer character yes. that you can really look at and be like, fuck yeah like there's been queer representation in horror for a long time and yeah there might be this is not really subtext at all this is like full-on <laughs> text <laughs> but like it's fascinating to say that now i mean like you can be like okay this is how horror has evolved with sexuality and this is how horror has addressed sexuality and it may seem like exploitative in one hand but there are really interesting ways to read it now especially at a time where i think a lot more women and non-binary people and trans people are like coming out and being able to reclaim these narratives of their own and mm-hmm. really like owning these things that were seen as harmful and making them feel more positive mm-hmm. that's why i feel like the conversations where people take offense to queer villains like on one hand i can definitely understand why we don't want to hear about you know jk rowling writing a fucking trans serial killer for her next book <laughs> fuck her fuck her but at the same time i don't ever want to like shut the door on having a queer villain or like queer victims because i think that undermines the fact that like these are still worthwhile narratives it's just that we need to have more and a different variety of them well i think you have to have more layered villains i mean like you know give me ursula from little mermaid any day of the week i will happily identify with ursula and she's a misunderstood (laughs) villain for sure and scar 
weekends. Yeah. <laughs> well, and that's, and like, again, like, I kind of love queer villains, but I also want to have, like you said, queer victims, queer heroes. I want queer people to have the same roles that straight people do in movies without it being like, this person is gay. Like, I don't, I don't know. And you guys understand this. I sure. think the queer villains, though, it's like, if it's something where it's like, oh, they're crazy because they're queer. That, that, yeah, that, that is yeah. Very that different. That's the portrayal. That's very that, tired. Yeah, you can have a queer villain that is it's a villain that happens to be queer, but not a villain that is a villain because they are queer, you know? A la Silence of the Lambs and all that awful yeah. shit. Where it's like, oh, you just think that... Mental, They're mentally like, ill. You're, you're mentally yeah. ill. Right. And it's like, no, huh? Yeah, for sure. <laughs> exactly. Mm, no. Oh, Thomas Harris, what you have wrought. Mm. <laughs> Jonathan Dem too. I blame him as well. Uh, yeah. So this is where we get a lot of fun back and forth between Renton and Madame Peridot. So Renton calls for the doctor and Madame Peridot gets really mad. And then he stalks garlic flowers all around Emma's room. And Madame Peridot's like, get those the fuck out of here. And he's like, why don't you take them? And drives her back into her room. And then Carmilla's like, well, let me go. Oh, you have flowers in there. Shit, I'm going to go kill the doctor. (laughs) Yeah, which she does, uh, because she immediately sees the doctor as a threat, so she gets him thrown off his horse, and then she eats him. I liked the messiness of this, though, like rolling around in the and yes. on the floor. Also sexy, in a weird yeah, way. Yeah, a little like, bit pre- sexy. Like, like, a little bit sexy. Mm-hmm. I do like it, too. Like, there's the insinuation that she bites you and puts you under her spell, but with the doctor, we actually see that even the look will do because he seems momentarily dazed when he gets a good look at her right yeah interestingly enough we also get a shot of the man on the horse in this scene even though we haven't seen him in ages and he is such a mysterious figure throughout this but i kind of love that the film doesn't ever explain him sure it annoyed me. Yeah, okay. I was like, <laughs> I'm sorry. It annoyed like, me. Well, th- he does speak because he's the one that tells the countess in the beginning, "Oh, you're this person's dead, so you got to go." Like, yeah. but that's all we get. That's all we get from him. And I think, the, the, we, yeah, we just see him again later, just smiling on his horse, and that's it. That that's all he is. Well, I think what frustrates me so much is I think that in my reading of the film, his presence makes it seem like Carmilla is not, like, in charge. Like, she's under the whims of some other figure or there's something, like, ordering her around or she serves on him. And I know there's no real context to address that, but it just feels like he's, like, a powerful figure, mm-hmm. a powerful vampire. And it felt to me like it kind of undermined her character in a way that frustrated me and didn't seem necessary. Right. That is very fair. My reading until... <sighs> And maybe even with the things, I kind of read him as death. Just like the embodiment of death. Because when he shows up to tell the Countess, he's literally telling her, your friend is dying. So for a while, I was almost like, is he even a real figure? Or is he just death kind of hovering over all of these proceedings? Right, that makes sense. I mean, again, completely unfounded because we don't get any more than a couple glimpses of him. Mm-hmm. I also thought he was one of like the dudes at first. I was like, is this one of like, it's like we're gonna get a twist where like one of the like generals or doctors is like an evil man, but no, it's not. It's a whole other dude. No, unfortunately, all the men in this movie are quote unquote good. Yeah. Boo. Boo. <laughs> so the doctor is dead. He did. And uh, Morton arrives home the next morning, and for some reason, Renton has brought this pub owner to the house to recount the <laughs> opening of the film. So we just get, like, a revamp of the prologue with Baron Von Hotdog? <laughs> <laughs> Hi. Hi! Yes! I was also like, what? 
was not expecting that. That's very <laughs> strange. Mm-hmm. Why I wouldn't Baron von Hotdog just tell us? Well, I and th- yeah, because this, this is when we, we we basically get like a repeat of it, right? Because they just yeah. show the decapitation again, and he's yeah. like, yeah. Do you ever feel like this is a thing that older movies do where they don't have a huge budget and they're like, pad the runtime, show us stuff we've already shot? Probably yes, so. Yes, I agree with that. I also sometimes feel like people think the audiences are stupid and they give mm-hmm. the credit for it. Right. Which, like, you know, I get. And, and to so- be fair, in this movie particularly, it's easy to have forgotten about this prologue because it yeah. seems like it was unconnected in it a lot of ways. no sense, exactly. <laughs> so I feel like this is almost also like, hey, you, you guys, just in case... Y'all can't connect the dots. Yeah. Here's what's happening. Well, because we haven't seen Hartog since the opening, and we're about, we, there's about 15 minutes left of this movie. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I looked at the runtime, I was like, wait, there's not that much time left. How, how are we going to wrap this? Okay, like, that's fine. We'll see what happens. Like, it was just very. But, like, we still have hating. so much to get through. I know. <laughs> it's so crazy. A lot happens in these last 15 minutes. It sure does. Good lord. So Morton ends up beating the general and Baron von Hotdog and Carl on the road. He sees that they've got the doctor's body, so that is a confirmed death, and everybody's very upset. Meanwhile, we've got some ridiculous upstairs-downstairs drama going on back at the house where Renton is spying on Madame Peridot through the keyhole. Mm-hmm. She's thrashing around. I do love that shot, though. I love a good mm-hmm. keyhole shot. I lo- the POV shots in this movie are so good. Mm-hmm. Like, surprisingly stylish. Again, yes. this is me being ignorant and contemporary, but I didn't think that the film would have this kind of style. I agree. I didn't think so either. I get, like, I had that whole impression in my head that Hammer Horror was schlock and, like, not, like, beautifully shot, but I was very surprised. Yeah, and I think, well, I think by this point, they definitely knew what they were doing. The only thing they were experimenting with that was new was the testing the boundaries of the censorship. So, I mean, again, right. like, mm-hmm. yeah, they, 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 they had the formula down. 15 years <laughs> strong here. Yeah, yeah, they had the formula down. Mm-hmm. Okay, so we kind of divide our story at this point. So the men tell no one, but they go off to the castle. <laughs> We get a little bit more of the Baron's opening scene uh, once they get there. And then back at the house, we've still got a little bit of flower action. So Carmilla tries to get Renton to remove the garlic flowers. And then when that doesn't work, she seduces him. Well, because they all think that Peridot is the villain. They don't even suspect Carmilla. It's so hilarious. Like I hmm, love it yeah, so much. Yeah, it's a good moment. Because Emma, even she... Emma never fell sick until this woman arrived, but it's probably her German tutor. Yeah, definitely. Because No, because even she thought that they were suspecting her. So when he says Peridot, she does this double take that's like, what? <laughs> like, you're that dumb? Oh, okay. <laughs> I do think it's funny, too, that to get him on her side, she turns him, but then he himself can't go near the flowers, so he has to ask poor Gretchen, the housemaid, who yeah. is so confused throughout all of this. Poor Gretchen has no fucking idea what's going on. Remove the flowers. Take the flowers. Keep them. Don't let them go. Remove the flowers. <laughs> it's like, what do you fucking people want from me? Like... <laughs> At the end of this, the, the stinger scene that like was never shot was just Gretchen being like, I get a fucking raise now, right? Because this is nonsense. <laughs> no, she quits and goes away on a horse. I just want her sitting there chewing on a piece of garlic. Like, <laughs> like eating the flour and just laughing to herself. She's like, oh, like, this is garlic? <laughs> decorative and tasty. <laughs> Okay, so back at the castle, the men are putting two and two together about who Carmilla is. You know, they see the painting, yada, yada. Uh, 
Back at the house, Renton orders Gretchen to remove the cross so that he... Because basically Carmilla won't fuck him until he removes the cross, and then she murders him. Immediately, which which, good. I fucking love it. It's like, oh, you did your due diligence? No, I'm not going to fuck you. (laughs) Dead. Yep. I love it so much. (laughs) And this is the point where Carmilla realizes she needs to leave. So she gathers up Emma to make a break for it. The saddest part of the film... It's the look on Madame Perido's face mm-hmm. when she asks Carmilla to take her with her, and Carmilla just kills her. <laughs> it's, I was not expecting that, I will not lie, but yeah, it's very, it's just like, and it sucks though because Perido doesn't really know what she's doing because she no. is hypnotized, so she's like enthralled, but it's still upsetting because you're just like, oh, can you just take her please? Like, she's so yeah, sad. Like, you, you could use this woman on the road, you could use a, someone who can help you along the way. But we'll, we assume that the Countess is still alive. Fair, even though we never see her again. No, never see her <laughs> <Yeah>. again. <laughs> it's like, oh, she'll be in the sequel, sure. Yeah. <laughs> well, uh, it's like that leads into the saddest moment where, like, she they've just she's discovered and she starts to cry. Mm-hmm. Wait, and I feel Carmilla like does Carmilla starts yeah. to cry. Yeah, and she like wipes the blood off of her mouth really quickly, and I feel like that's a kind of shame, like a weird sense of shame that you don't really see a lot in vampire movies. A right. lot of the time, the vampire is like. Very much like, yeah, I suck blood, whatever, and like feeling very powerful. But in this moment, she's rendered as so like kind of meek and scared mm-hmm. in a way that's so unexpected. But I, I kind of loved because it gives her more dimension than just like a mean villain. Right. But as someone who is like really just trying to survive and like really just is now stuck and doesn't know what to do. This is like the sort of primer climax i i guess this is the more action-packed climax of the film because carl has arrived and he's going to try to save emma and he ends up battling carmilla and she totally would have killed him Mm -hmm. except she pauses because emma makes a scared cry and it almost seems like she doesn't give way to carl because carl would have killed her it's when she realizes that Emma is scared of her, right. that's when yes. she leaves. And that is well, also really heartbreaking. Well, and, okay, so that, that's, you're right, though. This is essentially the climax because the last 10 minutes of this movie, Carmela has nothing to do. She no. is literally in this coffin the entire time as we watch these men bumble around for 10 minutes and then kill her. So this yeah. is the only, like, this is the last moment that Carmela has any agency in the film. Yeah. And I think that is a problem that I have with it because I don't like this last bit because it no. it feels the most formulaic. It's yeah. very Dracula. Yeah. And it's and I know there's probably a reason why she can't just like open her eyes. Because I kept waiting for her to open her eyes when they yep. find her, right? And she does she just sits she there as does. they like draw out this staking forever. So frustrating. It's so frustrating. Even the staking, and you're like, okay, well, I guess we're done, and that's sad. And then the general pulls her up, and he's like, well, you got to do the decapitation bit as well. And I again thought that maybe she was going to open her eyes or have something. And the film just kind of opts to say, oh, well, I guess she's defeated. Like, if if you want to read it as a queer romance, it's like she was dead the minute that Emma rejected her. And she just allows herself to be killed. It's not satisfying. It's it's not, but I wish there was more <laughs> to it. Like, I wish there was more of, like, a, even if she opened her eyes and, like, saw the state coming and just, like, closed them again. Yeah, it's interesting because I don't, I don't, I definitely expected a big action sequence here. And it doesn't deliver that. And then I couldn't tell if I was disappointed or content because I don't think it would have fit this film if there had been. But it also, yeah, it feels 
really anticlimactic because I wanted so much more for this character. And it feels like that's when the shift for me happens where it goes from like being like a hell yeah, like empowerment movie to like, Mm -hmm. okay, but we must sanitize it for men and the male gaze and make them realize that they are heroes and that they can save the meek women like Emma. Right. And that's when I get frustrated where I'm just like, it just, it, it feels, and it's like, it feels so sanitized for audiences. Like you can almost tell that they had that ending because they wanted to make male audiences and you know women too because like, you know, like a lot of oppressed women and like internalized misogyny thinking like oh this is the ending that we need to do to get people to actually come and see it or like enjoy it i mean yeah. and we do get the bit of emma like being telepathically connected to her and like mm-hmm. you know screaming her name yeah but like i'm not connected with emma i'm connected with yeah. carmilla <laughs> Well, and I was, Sorry, like, was I thought I thought Emma was gonna die when Carmilla died. I'm like, right? oh please, that please would've... have them linked. That would that be so been good. cool that... if they're like psychically linked to the point, or like their lives like depend on each other. Yes, I it's... would agree with that. Instead, what we get is the portrait of Dorian Gray, what? where yes. Marcella's painting turns into a skeleton. I do like mark. that effect, and I think it's a. It looks I, good. I think it's really cool, and yeah, and it has it has fangs painted on it, <laughs> as one does. Like, I did like the effect, but I was like, but why, though? Yeah. Mm-hmm. I mean, again, probably just like, oh, we can do it, so why not? That's Which 100% I respect, what it is. But I was like, yeah. this painting had nothing to do with anything. It only came as irrelevance the last, like, 15 minutes of the film. Yeah. yeah. Okay. <laughs> sure. I literally I literally love that the men are so fucking dumb that it took the portrait for them to put it all together. That doesn't even <laughs> look like her, by the no, way. No, it doesn't. <laughs> it looks like the like first that. vampire that Baron Von Hotdog yes. murders in the opening. Yes. I was like, that's how you figured it out? She looked, exactly. She looks just like the one from the beginning. Like, that doesn't make any sense that yeah. that's how you put those two things together. It's like they can't trust their own eyes, but they can trust a painting that doesn't look right. Sure. <laughs> yep. Men are dumb. <laughs> also, she just has her own portrait hanging up above her fucking gravestone, like to, like her own coffin. Amazing. Yeah, like, <laughs> that's like hanging your own self portrait in your house. <laughs> hey, you, <laughs> looking good. <laughs> Got a pair of fangs under there. Yeah, you do. <laughs> but yeah, that's uh, that's the vampire lovers, y'all. Yeah. Final thoughts. I loved it. I'm so glad I got to watch this movie. I think there are obvious, like, you know, we've talked about the problems, but I think it sets such an amazing tone for vampire films in terms of, like, women as vampires Mm -hmm. and women as main vampires, not the side chicks, not brides of Dracula, but their own figures who aren't even based around Dracula. And I think it talks a lot about vampire sexuality in a really fascinating way that, again, wasn't talked about. Vampires were dudes in suits who were, like, kind of hot and scary, and (laughs) they were seducing women, but it wasn't – this completely flips it on its head, which I love. Again, it subverts the Byronic vampire that we all know and love, question mark? (laughs) Um, I wish that there were more female vampire movies. I think we're still – yeah, there, there are more, but I wish there yeah. were more like this one. But I, th- it's so cool to see how so many vampire movies took inspiration from films like this. Like, well, that's the, that's what makes you want to do a deep dive into like, I mean, Hammer Horror, of course, but like just just older films in general because obviously yeah. it makes you smarter when you, when you watch something modern and you're like, oh, like I've seen that before. But it also like that also hurts sometimes modern viewing experiences because you're more critical then of like, oh, well, I've seen that before. <laughs> yeah, exactly. yeah. But I think it's like, I think it is really fascinating to see how horror 
is able to build off of itself Mm -hmm. in a really awesome way. And, like, you know, you know that as a horror fan, but it's just really cool to go back in history and really see, like, the building blocks of the genre and how crew filmmakers and writers have chosen to subvert or use those common tropes to make their own stories. And I think that's just really cool. I think, Trace, you and I probably had the same kind of issue where, like, on a first watch, there was some stuff here that just didn't quite connect. And I think now knowing what the film is a second viewing would actually be more rewarding because you know what what was coming. Yeah, the narrative for this didn't really connect with me all that much. Like, I didn't find myself making that emotional connection that I like to have when I watch films. But I think I now have a really good understanding of where the lesbian vampire film phenomenon kind of got its grounding. Like, I can see a lot of the benchmarks here. But most importantly, I have an appreciation for Ingrid Pitt, and it just confirms to me that these lesbian vampire films, if nothing else, give us these iconic badass bitches who are so fucking gorgeous. I completely understand, like, now having watched this and Daughters of Darkness, I'm like, I need sexy, hot, fantastic-looking lesbian vampires. I want to see Ingrid Pitt and Countess Dracula, which is not actually a vampire movie. She's um, Madame Bathory, who kills young women in basically oh, blood. That's what Daughters of Dracula... Uh, 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 yeah. Daughters Daughter- of Darkness is too, yeah. Yeah, exactly. Um, but it's cool because she's like Countess Dracula and everyone's like, it's a vampire. I'm like, no, she's just a psychopath and I love her. <laughs> nice. I love Elizabeth Bathory, even though she's kind of a nut. Yes. Um, <laughs> yeah, no, I, I, I'm kind of... A, I, I, I gave it a three. I think, I think it's good. I like a lot of it. It just, yeah, the narrative isn't fully, like... Anything without Pitt in it, honestly, is kind of just kind of like, eh, I can take it or leave it. So it's one of those things. But yeah, when you take into account the historical significance of it, I, I appreciate it more. It's not right. one that I really want to go re- go back and revisit. Like, I do prefer Daughters of Darkness to this. Yes, absolutely. But I do still like it. Yeah. Okay. Well, uh, before we announce what we're covering next week, first, Mary Beth, thank you for coming to talk with us this week. Oh my yeah. gosh, thank you so much for having me to talk about this movie. It was so cool to watch and so fun to talk of about. Of course. <laughs> and this is your time to plug. What do you want to talk about? Okay, so you can follow me on Twitter at MBMcAndrews to see all the writings. I write for too many places on the internet, so that's where you can keep track of where I write. I co-host a podcast with Terry Menard, a.k.a. Gaily Dreadful, called Scarred for Life, where we talk about the films that scared us as kids which is very fun, and we interview some amazing people. Trace and Joe have both been past guests, mm-hmm. so please give us a give us a listen. I have a couple cool things coming up. I have a chapter of a book about, called Queering the Vampire, actually. Yes. That's coming out. Joe, you actually sent me the call for papers for that one, and I got in. So. Fantastic. Congratulations. Yeah. So I'm writing about vampires for them. Um, I've got a couple things coming out with Second Sight for um, The Strangers and another movie that I can't share quite yet, but just keep your eye out on Second Sight. There's some couple really cool sets coming out that I have words in. So Nice. Yeah. Yay. Yeah. Well, if you would like to get in touch with us you can reach us on twitter and instagram at horror queers and join our facebook horror queers group to hang out with other listeners if you have a moment please rate and review us on your podcatcher of choice if you want merchandise please check out our store at t public just search for horror queers on teepublic.com and if you want even more horror queers content please support the show by becoming a patron at patreon.com slash horror queers we are heading into october tomorrow which Ooh. means we've got lots of fun halloween stuff planned for the patreon 
we're going to go crazy with episodes on Netflix's new Ryan Murphy series, Ratchet, plus Mike Flanagan's The Haunting of Bly Manor. We'll also have an episode on Hulu's Clive Barker adaptation, The uh, Books of Blood. And also, of course, uh, another episode on Ben Wheatley's Rebecca. And we're also going to have an audio commentary to fit the month on Halloween H2O. Joe. Yes. What are we checking out next week to kick off October? Uh, well, we're going to stick with movie titles that begin with the, and we're going to jump ahead to far more contemporary times. We're going to check out The Final Girls from 2015. Co-written by former Attack of the Queer Wolf co-host Mark Fortin. Mm-hmm. So we get some queerness in there. Love that movie. Haven't seen it in a couple years, and I'm excited to revisit it. Yeah, me too. Uh, well y'all check in with us next week but on that note we can cross out the vampire lovers yes and cross out horror queers Disgusting Podcast Network, home of creepy, disturbing, and terrifying creepy pastas, SCP archives, weekly full cast storytelling, Sephora queers, genre commentary from an LGBTQ perspective, and the Boo Crew. Horror-centric interviews. Listen free wherever you stream audio and at bloodydisgusting.com/podcasts.